Let's be turning to Mark chapter 4, and we will read the verses that relate to the song that we just were able to sing together. Thank you, Brother Aaron, for leading that. Mark 4, beginning in verse 35. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. Jesus comes the storm. Mark 4, 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? You know storms, you know about Doppler radar, you know about first alert days, you yourself probably are a storm <coughs> tracker. We all see the aftermath of storms, but perhaps we have some things we can learn even from this storm and this occasion in the life of Jesus. Let's bow together as we pray. Our Holy Father, as we turn and read and learn from your word this morning during the Lord's Day worship, we pray that we might be able to receive calm in our lives, just as you, O oh Lord, calm the seas. Help us, Lord, to draw near to your precious bleeding side this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to notice five features from this account of Jesus calming the storm. Five features. Okay. First, we'll notice the greatness that is found in this account. The, the, the greatness. The greatness. And then, secondly, we want to notice the friction. The friction that is in this account. And then thirdly, we will notice the emotion, the emotions that are found in this account of Jesus calming the storm. And then fourth feature, we'll notice a study of the Lord himself, a study of the Lord himself. And then finally, we'll notice the challenge that Jesus proposes and offers at the last. So let's begin with the greatness, the greatness that is found in this story. You notice the word great here. Notice in verses 37, 
Mark 4.37, Mark 4.39, Mark 4.41. The word great. The word great here means mega. It comes from the Greek word mega. Okay. Um, megaphone. Mega means that which is huge, that which is great, that which is large, that which surpasses the normal. Okay. Uh, if you were ever a Rush Limbaugh fan, the callers would call in and say, mega dittos. Okay. But we know of mega things, mega cities, mega phone, mega here, mega. Notice in verse 37, there is a mega storm that arose, a mega, a great windstorm arises. Then notice in verse 39 of Mark 4, that Jesus rebukes the storm and there's a great calm, a mega calm. See that? And then notice verse 41. Also, there is mega fear in the disciples. Mega fear. So a great storm, a great calm, and great fear we find here. Notice the greatness in this account. Okay. Let's just think about the storm for a minute. It was a great storm. They were on the Sea of Galilee going across. And it was such a great storm that the, the waves were not only beating against the boat, but they, the waves were coming in the boat. And the boat was beginning to fill up uh, with water. This is a storm at night. Now, most of the time, they fished at night because they wanted to avoid a lot of the wind and storms during the day. It was very unusual for a storm, especially of this magnitude, to come up during the night. Most of the time, they would find calm waters to fish in at night. But this is a perfect storm. This is a, is a horrific storm. This is no thunderstorm. This is no passing cloud. This is a storm of some magnitude at night. The way the Sea of Galilee is so structured, the geographical and topographical regions around the Sea of Galilee makes the sea like a wind tunnel. The mountains on the sides of the sea creates down at the sea something like a wind tunnel. Even today, if you go over and visit in these lands and you get on the Sea of Galilee, there, there will be warnings because storms will come up suddenly and without much notice at all. And so some people have called this a tempest in a teacup type situation. And so you can see why the disciples were very afraid. They were not accustomed to storms of this magnitude, especially at night. Here it is, and the waves are beating and the water is coming uh, in the boat. The winds were coming rather fierce. The winds would come from the east, sometimes from the desert reg regions, and sometimes the winds would come from the west off the Mediterranean Sea. But nonetheless, the storms arise, and this storm, this particular storm, was, was a tempest. It was terrible and it was scaring everybody but Jesus so notice here the greatness in the story great storm 
a great calm, and then finally great fear uh, in the disciples. Before we leave this idea of greatness, let's remember why there are storms in the first place. Why there are storms in the first place. Romans 8 verses 20 to 23 talks about how that this very earth has been subjected to futility. It's been subjected to groaning. This earth has problems. We have problems because of sin. And the very earth that we live on has problems because of sin. If you notice in Romans 8, you'll see the word subjected. This creation, this earth that we live on has been subjected to this type of groaning, this type of storms. Okay? This means that the earth originally didn't have these problems. What God created in the beginning was good. In fact, it was very good. But when sin entered into the world, and then death through sin, the creation began to groan. And so there have been storms ever since. We go back to the early days of, of Job. And you look at Job 1, verse 19. Job's children die because they were all in the elder brother's house and a great windstorm comes up and destroys the place and they all die. We remember from Job, we can go over to Jonah. Jonah 1, as Jonah tries to flee from the responsibility before God, Jonah gets in a ship headed to Tarshish. Jonah 1, verse 4, and a great storm comes upon uh, that sea. Now we're back to the time of Jesus and there are storms. There are storms now. There will always be storms and earthquakes and such like from here on out because sin is here. Death will always be because sin is here. Storms will always be because sin is here. And it is a reminder every time that we have an encounter with a storm or hear about a storm, it should be a reminder to us of why there are storms. And it ought to be a reminder to us to be more holy in God's sight and to realize the great necessity of Jesus' death for our sins and the importance of salvation and the temporary nature of this earth and the fact that heaven is the home that we need. So first of all, I wanted us to see the greatness that is in uh, this account. Secondly, I want us to see the friction, the friction that is involved here. There are three rebukes. There are three rebukes. Okay, you can see it for yourself. Mark 4, 38, 39, and 40. By the way, this same account is recorded by Matthew, Matthew 8, around verse 23, and then Luke 8, around verse 22. But we're just focusing here on Mark's account. In Mark's account, notice in Mark 4, 38, 39, and 40, notice first of all, that the disciples rebuke Jesus. He is on the stern, he's down on the stern, he's on the cushion, he's asleep. Carest thou not that we perish? So they rebuke Jesus. The second rebuke here is the fact that Jesus arises and rebukes the storm. And there is that great calm. And then the third rebuke is that here, after the, the calm, Jesus rebukes his disciples for their lack of faith. So we see three rebukes here. Let's focus for just a minute on the rebuke the disciples give Jesus. They come to him and say, Master, we are perishing. Carest thou not? Carest thou not? Well, first of all, this is a foolish, such a foolish thing, isn't it? 
Such a foolish thing. Is the Savior of the world more than that? Is the Creator of the world about to let Himself drown? Is He about to let Himself drown? The one who made everything, is He the one who knows it all and created it all? Is He about to let Himself drown? Of course not. How foolish it is for them to question Jesus as they did. The song that we just sang, don't you love that part that says, no water can swallow the ship where lies the master of ocean, the ocean, the earth, and the skies. No water can swallow the ship where lies the master, who lies there? The master of the ocean, the earth, and the skies. How foolish it is for them to come and question Jesus as they did. They are re rebuking uh, their Savior. Okay. It sounds a little smart elically to me. It sounds like they're sassing, but... Can you imagine us allowing a few ants to take us away into the depths of the earth, into their colonies? That's about how it is to think about Jesus would allow himself. The creator of the world, the creator of the universe, is going to allow himself to drown before it's time for him to die on the cross. It's just foolish. And so their rebuking of Jesus is a foolish thing, but it's also a typical thing. How like it is... For the creation to rebuke the creator. It happens all the time. How, how foolish it is, but, but how typical it is that the creation will rebuke the creator. That, that the servant will question what his master is doing. How typical this is. We do this as well. I think about uh, Genesis 4. I think about how God comes to Cain you know, where is your brother? What did Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? That sounds a little sassing to me. I'll tell you what, you know, I, have a, I have a little brother, and when we were at home, if my mom wanted to know where my little brother was, and if I said to her, am I my brother's keeper? I don't want to look, I don't even think about that. <laughs> How typical it is, though, for us to, to rebuke our Creator. How do we do that? Well, when we worry and when we doubt, we have anxiety, we are questioning whether God is in control or not. When we panic, we are questioning whether God is in control. When we doubt, we are questioning whether God is in control or not. So the disciples rebuking Jesus, how foolish, how typical, but also how thoughtless. Think about the question they're asking here. Do you care? Jesus, do you care? I wonder how, how often Jesus hears those words throughout every day, throughout the week. Jesus, do you care? Lord, I don't think you really care for me. I'm thinking the Lord, you don't really care for me. What if somebody were to say that to you? What if somebody said, I just don't think the Lord cares for me as he does you. I don't think the Lord really cares like you say he does. What would you say 
in response. Think about that for a second. What would you say? The Lord doesn't care. I would say, first of all, He saturates our lives with blessings. Just like Mark was praying earlier uh, this morning about how that God gives us every day food, water, shelter, air to breathe, transportation. He lays it out there before us. He blesses us, blesses us with this opportunity this morning. He saturates us with blessings. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, James 1.17. He just saturates our, our blessings. We can't possibly count all the blessings in life. So that's one way he cares. Another thing that I might say is that he, he has demonstrated, he demonstrates uh, his care for us. Certainly on the cross he has. Okay. Certainly in all of his providential care, he has demonstrated and he continues to demonstrate his love and care for us. But not only that, he communicates it all to us. He's given, it, he's given a record of how much he cares in the Holy Scriptures, in, in the Bible that we have before us. And then he elevates us. We don't have to continue to be dominated by sin. We can, we can obey his will. We can draw near to him. We can become more like him. We can actually be sons of God. We can be on our way to heaven. If someone says to you, I don't think the Lord cares, well, step back and think about it. Has he saturated your life with blessings? Has he demonstrated his love to us? Has he communicated his will to us? Is he willing to elevate us above the system and the desires of the devil? Has he prepared for us a home in heaven? We all know that's true. That's a sermon within a sermon. I wish I could think about that for further. But saturating, demonstrating, communicating, all these are ways in which God shows his care for us. And finally, he will elevate us finally to a home in heaven. So first I wanted us to see the greatness that's in this account, but also the friction that is there. In the third place, I want us to see the emotions that are here. And this has to do with the fear of the disciples. There's a two-stage fear here. Okay. First, they have normal fear, what we would say is normal fear. Okay. Um, we would say, and this, this doesn't mean that God approved it. God certainly didn't approve it because Jesus rebukes them. But we would, we would understand the fear they would have with that storm at night and them being in a boat. By the way, their boat. Their boat. There have been several discoveries of the typical fishing boat near the Sea of Galilee okay, uh, through the years. And a typical fishing boat, about 27 foot long, about seven foot wide and about four foot in height. Okay. So it's not a canoe. It's not a rowboat. But it's certainly no Titanic either. Okay. You could see why they would be scared. Okay. This storm is coming down, it's coming down fast, and their boat's beginning to fill with water. You can understand their fear. But that doesn't mean that Jesus approved of it. Let's think about different fears and phobias that, that people have for a second. Let's think about that. Well, there's the fear of water. There's the fear of heights. There's the fear of cramped little small places. Some have. 
There's the fear of public speaking. There is the fear of a virus. There is a lot of fears. The biggest fear behind all fears is explained to us in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, the fear of death. The fear of death keeps people in bondage all their lifetime unless they're able to come and submit themselves to the Lord Jesus in a full-hearted fashion. And then God can take away that fear. You can take away the fear of death, you can take away all fears. But if any fear remains, then you still got the fear of death in your heart. And then there's the second stage of their fear. Talk about their emotions here. Okay. This is quite incredible. Jesus wakes up, he rebukes the storm, and notice the text here, and they are filled with great fear. Their mega fear comes after Jesus calms the storm. Everything is calm. The wind, the sea, the boats, except within the disciples, they're still agitated. Why is that? And we'll come back to that in just a minute. Let's move on to our next feature, and that is to focus on a study of Jesus himself. Okay, looking at this account, notice it is Jesus' ideal to go across this sea. That's what it says. If you look at verse 35 of Mark 4, he says, let's go across this sea. This reminds us of things that we read about all the time in the New Testament. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He knew exactly who was going to betray him. He knew exactly who would not believe in him. Nothing is surprising Jesus along the way. He knew that he had to leave. He told his disciples in John 14, Thomas and, and Philip especially, I must go away. They, they said, why, Lord, do you need to go away? Show us, the, show us the way. Jesus knew what he was headed for. He predicted the cross itself. And Jesus knew this storm was coming. He knew exactly how all this was going to occur. So look at Jesus, the study of Jesus. Notice his knowledge. Notice his knowledge, Mark 4, 35. And then notice further that he is, he is there on that cushion. He is asleep. He's asleep. This causes us to think about the humanity of Jesus. Son of God, yes, but also very human. How exhausted Jesus must have been this day. Jesus worked very hard. And his sleep at night was sweet. And he was exhausted. He was asleep. He was asleep. My grandpa Barker, called Pop, we called him Pop Barker, he slept through the storms. Pop and Mama in our neighborhood of Barkers, growing up on Highway 5 in Jasper, in our neighborhood little village of Barkers, okay, Pop and Mama's only house that had a basement. And so when the storms come, they would get us up at night, drag us to the basement. But Pop always, he never come down. He never come down. He always just slept. He slept through any storm, no matter what, except for April 3rd, 1974. He came downstairs. And when he come downstairs, I thought in myself, something's up. Something was up. So he come downstairs with a guitar and he just played Psalms on the guitar. Jesus was asleep because he was weary. He was exhausted. And this reminds us of Jesus' 
humanity. Absolutely remarkable. We can't really get our arms around it at all, but it's tremendous to think about how that Jesus is the Lord God, but he also has taken part of his own creation. Now he is a human being. And then notice the sheer power of Jesus. Just as soon as the words come out of his mouth, did the wind and the sea stop? It's almost as if the wind and the sea had ears to hear and to understand because just as it come out of Jesus' mouth, everything calmed. Calm. Just the sheer power of Jesus is enormous to even think about. He is in control of his creation. We're not surprised. Remember over Matthew 21, verses 18 and 19, Jesus was hungry. There's his, there's his humanity. He was hungry. He came upon a fig tree. The fig tree had leaves. Normally, if it has leaves, it's got fruit behind it. But on this particular fig tree, for some reason or another, did not have fruit behind the leaves. So Jesus cursed the tree and it withered away immediately. Now, there's a, I think there's a greater lesson behind that, but we won't get into that right now. But Jesus, notice how he is in control of his creation. Before we leave Jesus, think about this. This fourth feature of our account, just focusing on Jesus, the main person, the main character of our story here. Think about his identity. They would say at the end of this account, they would say, what sort of man is this? Who is this that the wind and the, and the seas obey him? He's in a class by himself. There is no compartment to put Jesus in because he is simply unlike. He is absolutely unique. All right. Having discovered that, we come back over to the second emotion here, the second stage of the emotions of the, of the um, disciples. They feared, they had their mega fear after Jesus calmed the storm. What is this? What is this? Well, it's something what you might call holy power. They're in the presence of not just power, but holy power. It's automatically assumed that this is the great God, the holy God who, is, who has done this. It's very similar if you look over to Luke 5 and verse 8 when Jesus helped Peter and his partners make that great catch of fish and how that the nets broke and one boat was full and another boat was full and the boats began to sink. And what was Peter's response? I'll tell you what Peter's response was. He said, he said Lord, um, I'm in a business here and um, you can do this. I've got the fishing gear. I've got the boat. I'll tell you what, Lord. Uh, I'll give you 50% of all my business. If you'll, if you'll come here once or twice a month, once or twice a month, and do your thing, okay, this great fish, this great catch, then I'll give you 50%. You won't have to clean nets. You won't have to mend nets. You won't have to clean the boat. We'll take care of all that. Is that what Peter did? Peter said, Luke 5, verse 8, Depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Why? Not just power, but holiness. Holy power. I think this is how the, the disciples back over here at the coming of the storm, 
This is somewhat how they felt then. Okay. They had fear of the storm, but when they saw what Jesus could do with the storm, it created a mega fear in them. There is a, another phobia. It's called this. It's called xenophobia. And that is the fear of strangers. Strangers sometimes haunt us because they are so much different. Remember what we said? What sort of man is this? That the winds obey him. He's in a class by himself. And so they're fearful of Jesus because they don't have any explanation for him. They have no compartment for him. He is, he is unbelievable, but he is true Depart from me, or I'm just scared to death, but we must deal with the Lord. Eventually, Peter must deal with the Lord. Eventually, the disciples must deal with this holy power, and so must we. We cannot run away from the Lord. We must simply submit to Him because He's in control anyway. And then our final feature is the feature of Jesus challenging rebuking but challenging his disciples to greater faith. Notice in Matthew's account, Matthew 8, 23 to 27, Jesus says there, Matthew has him saying, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? O you of little faith. Over in Luke's account, Luke has Jesus asking the disciples, Where is your faith? Here in Mark's account, very similarly, Jesus asked, why are you afraid? Are you yet still without faith? You can kind of hear a little bit of frustration, as it ought to be, in Jesus' voice there. When are you ever going to come with your faith? Where is your faith? How much more do you need? How much longer will it take you to come to faith? And we learn from this. We learn, first of all, that faith and fear cannot coexist. It just cannot happen. If we don't learn this from this account, we'll never learn it at all. Faith and fear cannot live at the same time. A second thing that we learn is that only with Jesus can there be peace. In fact, Jesus says this in John 16, where he says, I have spoken these things unto you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And this is sort of like we was talking about last week. If Jesus can do this, then he can do that. If he can take care of the physical, he can take care of the invisible. And what we need is the invisible. What we need is the peace of heart. He's trying to, by giving us these accounts, he's begging us to see that only he and committing to him and staying with him, only that can bring us the peace that we so desire. Indeed, let us pray and pray and pray and pray. Lord, calm us as you calm that sea. Faith. Where is my faith? Where is, where is your faith? Is it little, huge, big, somewhere in between? Unless you're just a very, very shallow person, which I don't think you are, you can kind of hear the spiritual overtones in this account. 
It's not just about a real storm and a real stopping of the storm, but there seems to be here the fact that within us all we have storms of life. The biggest storm of life at all, of all is sin and that Jesus is the one through His death, through His blood, through His will, through our submission to Him, He can bring the peace uh, that we need. But where is our faith? Where is our faith? And so these five features, I wanted to see the greatness of the account. I wanted to see the friction that was there, the emotions of the disciples. I wanted to see just how sheer, great, and wonderful Jesus is, but also notice how disappointed he was in the disciples' faith. And it brings us to where we're at right now. When the Lord looks at me and then you, what does he see? Is, is he disappointed? And we stand here in just a minute. We're going to sing this song. Let's all give great consideration to the greatness of our Lord, but also to our need for him. Will you come as we stand? As we stand.